0: start earlier don't think about it more and more and wonder when you're going to do it if you have the idea and you have the passion to do it don't wait start today start right now make that first phone call get your business license get set up name your company start moving don't waste time because what you'll find is once you get into this you never have enough time
1: Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups and uh, seven and eight-figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, feel free to go to strategymeeting.com. We're always here to help. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, uh, Roger Tilton and give you a quick introduction to roger so i uh, didn't realize till a few years ago that has had or, uh, th- or life had a theme since really started in high school um when in high school it was always trying to get uh, access to something that people didn't want to have or didn't want to have access to nothing bad of course but just uh, and he'll expand on that a little bit but in high school um his, uh, his parents got divorced um uh, mom had three kids was a single mom grew up and and you know a meager uh, meager lifestyle dad on the opposite hand had a nice lifestyle so kind of saw both sides of that after graduated went to university of washington got a degree graduated at one or not the best time in the 1980s with the depression but still found a job as a journalist or did that for a period of time and then his wife at the time told him that there was opportunities to make more money than a journalist because journalists oftentimes don't make as much as you would think so went in to be a stockbroker did that for 20 years and then started his own private equity firm so with that much as an introduction welcome on the podcast roger Thanks very much. Glad to be here. So I gave a very quick run through of a much longer journey. So take us back in time a bit to, you know, how, you, first of all, the, a bit of the theme of your life that started in high school and kind of how, how things got going from there. And, and let's uh, uh, talk about your journey from there.
0: All right. Well, when uh, when we're growing up, we think that our situation is normal, that this is how everybody grows up. So we don't really see ourselves as any different. But you got it right. I called it uh, going from poverty to posh in a Mm. weekend, in a 45-minute car ride. (laughs) Uh, When my parents were divorced, uh, my mom was single, like you said. I had two brothers. And we lived in what I call the Gario, you know, part ghetto, part barrio in uh, San Jose. But on the weekends, we'd go stay at this high-rise Twin Peaks condo overlooking San Francisco, San Francisco Bay, and Oakland. So I didn't realize it, but I had one foot in each bucket, basically, since the time I was a little kid. When I got to high school, I ran for class president as a freshman because from what I had heard, the the freshman class never got anything out of the student council. So I thought, hey, I'll give you access to that. I didn't know the word access back then, but it became a theme of my life. And when I left the brokerage firm for the last time in 2016, I realized that my whole life had been providing access to people to something they didn't have access to, whether it was Politics in high school, or I became a reporter. I would go out and find the information so people would have it. So they would have access to the news, the newsmakers, the news conferences. I would report that back to them. So then the whole money thing is like, oh, yeah, that's not, you can't make a living doing that.
1: Let's jump or jump back just because you, you jumped over a whole bunch of the story, which I think is interesting. So you went to high school, kind of figured that out, and you kind of saw both, side, or both sides of the spectrum with the rich dad, poor mom type thing instead of rich dad, poor dad, you know, those type of right. things. We got to see both things within a short distance of time went to uh, University of Washington, but then you were coming out during kind of the depression in the 1980s. And I think that's what you kind of said, hey, I was trying to figure out what I want to do. Journalist uh, opportunity came available and that's how you started out after graduation or kind of how did you start out in journalism?
0: Yeah, I started out in journalism when I went to a community college in uh, Cupertino, California. I went to De Anza College and on the first day I went into the newspaper office and they needed bodies and I was sports editor by the end of day one, editor-in-chief two and a half months later. And I was also a reporter, photographer, typesetter. I did it all. Hmm. And then when I transferred to the University of Washington, I worked on the UW Dailies. And then from there, I ended up at a TV station doing writing and uh, producing newscasts.
1: No, well, that sounds like, a, you know, fun opportunity and, and something that kind of interesting as you're getting, you're coming out of college. Now you did that. How long, how long did you do the journalism uh, journalism position or journalism job?
0: It, it was, I was, I spent a total of 10 years as a journalist, the last five with the TV station, the TV news.
1: Mm. So you and did that-
0: that's when, and that's when I switched over to Merrill Lynch and, and it was really all about money and mm. isn't wall street really all about money. And that's <laughs> kind of what I realized, you know, mm after 27 years being a financial advisor, I I realized that that really wasn't what I wanted to do. I mean, I enjoyed helping people, giving them access to investments, right? Access to capitalism, but it really doesn't work that way. The rich get richer and the poor and the middle class get poorer.
1: Hmm. No, and and that uh, definitely, that definitely makes sense. And so you know, you know you get into journalism you know it sounds like it would be a fun or exciting job but after a period of time saying hey it's more difficult to support myself off this wage i'm going to look for something so i said okay i'll go into more of the investment go into wall street they're about money and i can make a good wage and income when you made that that transition you know did you have any background or experience or know how to get into it or how did you because it seems like you know a bit of a jump from journalism to more of a wall street and investing in venture capital and angel investor and and finances and all that so how did you kind of make that transition or that leap?
0: Well, this is where the story gets good, Devin. My mother, as I told you, um, had three sons, single, part-time jobs, and she went to college at night. She ended up getting her college degree in her 30s and then got hired at EF Hutton in the mid-1970s as a stockbroker. So I had a part-time job there for a few months in 1979, and I thought, oh, I could do that. But I was a journalist. I was writing. I was getting published. I didn't want to do that. Mm. But it was in the back of my mind. And so eventually, many years later, I thought, oh, I could do that. And so I went about getting hired without ever telling my mother that I was quitting journalism. I just called her one day and said, hey, mom, I do what you do now. I work at Merrill Lynch.
1: Mm. No, and it makes sense. So Now you do that for a period of time. And you say, OK, I'm going to go. I'm going to work at Merrill Lynch. I'm going to do finances. Now, the one question I had was it was it simply it was at, was that simple as simply your wife said, hey, this is going to be, you know, we need to make more money or we need to or figure out a better income to support the family. Was that as simple as the decision was or was there anything more involved or anything that kind of more that went into that?
0: <laughs> well, it was a little bit more involved um, in TV news, especially you bump into a ceiling. You know, I, I was working in the Seattle market. I think at the time it was the 14th largest television market. And it was a destination market. People wanted to move to Seattle so they would take lower pay. For me to get higher pay, I'd have to move to a larger market like New York. Mm. And I didn't really want to do that. Plus, I wanted to wear nice looking suits to work every day. And I didn't do that as a journalist. And I thought, yeah, I, want to, I really want to ingratiate myself into this Wall Street lifestyle.
1: So now, so now you make that transition, you kind of, you know, start to figure it out. Was it enjoy, you know, was it as rewarding or enjoyable as, you know, doing the, all the journalism stuff? Was it fun and exciting? Or did you, you know, did it, was it one where, hey, I made a lot of money, I get to wear the nice suits, but I wish I'd go back to journalism and kind of, how was that transition for you?
0: Well, two months after uh, I started at Merrill Lynch, I was at the World Series in 1989. It was the Fifth consecutive year I had gone to the World Series. Huge baseball fan, right? And there's an earthquake, and I work at Merrill Lynch. I'm not a journalist, mm-hmm. and I was so bummed. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> I want to tell this story, but mm-hmm. I couldn't. Um, yeah, there was a lot of give and take. I I liked helping people. I liked giving people access to Wall Street investments, mm-hmm. but I really soured on it over the years because Wall Street really does only care about themselves and the one percenters, and everybody else is just kind of a nuisance. Mm-hmm. And so what I wanted to do was give access to the 99 percenters. You know, most people don't realize this, but access to capitalism is very limited in this country. And when I say capitalism, I'm talking about generational wealth building capitalism, not capitalism with loan sharks and student loans and refinance and foreclosure. Because look at people in their 20s and 30s today. What, have they, what is their experience with capitalism? Debt, loans, difficulties making it. I mean, they don't have access to wealth generating capitalism like private equity, like venture capital, like new industries. And that's what I've set out to do with my company is give people access, give the 99 percenters access to the wealth building mechanisms of capitalism, like private equity, like venture capital. And I'm doing it with the legal adult use cannabis trade, because it's not regulated by the federal government right now. And if you, as an investor, wanted to get into private equity or venture capital or legal cannabis, Mm. you have to be accredited. Accredited means you have a million dollars of liquid net worth sitting over there in your bank account or your stock account, and you make $200,000 a year Mm -hmm. or $300,000 if you're married. That's 1% of the people, so we're eliminating 99% of the people from access to getting rich mm. no
1: no one question and we'll definitely dive into that a bit but before just backing up a bit so you did worked on wall street it was for 20 plus years is that
0: right 27 years as a registered representative
1: on the nyse so now, so now you do that for, you know, 20 plus years, what made? what was the tipping point or what's the, the, at what point did you say, Hey, I want to do this on my own. I want to go out and start my own firm, give people access to, uh, you know, capital they may not have otherwise done. And that type of thing, what, what gave you that, uh, you know, that, what gave you that motivation
0: that prompting to do that? Well, I think it started when I wrote an op-ed that went viral in October of 2008 that said, dear Congress, don't bail out wall street. Because Mm. I knew exactly what would happen. You know, I read that article now, 13 years later, and exactly what I predicted would happen happened. You know, they took all the money and they gave themselves big bonuses for bailing themselves out. Hey, we saved the company. Yay. So, 2008, 2009, the way that Wall Street engineered that financial meltdown, you know, it was disgusting and nobody paid the price. Not one single person went to jail for that. So that's that's kind of when I started looking for an out. And then in 2012, uh, when Washington legalized adult use cannabis and Colorado did, too, I thought, okay, there's an industry that's going to become one of the fastest growing industries in the United States, not the world in the next decade or two. I mean, and now we've seen it. That was nine years ago that we first legalized adult use cannabis in the United States. Nine years. Now we have 15 states that have legalized. And we're on our way to 50. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt we're going to get there. And so who's going to make money on the cannabis industry? Mm. The rich, fat Wall Street guys again? Probably. But what I want to do is offer access to that industry, that generational wealth building opportunity to the 99 percenters. I'm not going to leave out the one percenters, but the way that I look at it, Devin, mm. the minimum for the one percenters is $25,000. The minimum for the 99 percenters, $420. -hmm. Now, the accredited investors still get all that fine due diligence research of a Wall Street analyst. I mean, I've been doing it for 30 years now. I've spent Mm -hmm. the last five years tracking the growing legal cannabis trade. Mm.
1: No, that that definitely makes sense. So now that kind of brings uh, brings us to where you're at today. Now, if you're kind of, you know, in, in doing the investment helping the you know the other 99 percent or those that are don't typically have access to it or can invest when you look at now kind of the next six to 12 months where do you see things headed or, or what's the trajectory you guys are on
0: it's nothing but up Devin I mean this industry every every time you turn around there's another store opening I live right on the border with Massachusetts and southern New Hampshire and there are Legal adult use marijuana stores opening all over the state. I mean, it's just happening. Maine now is starting to open retail stores. You've got Illinois and Michigan. I mean, it's a growing industry. And for anybody who wants to participate, we're here for you. You don't have to have a million dollars net worth, you don't have to have a $25,000 minimum. You can have access.
1: So, so no, and I, I think that, that's that's cool in the sense that I think that, you know, it's an industry that, you know, people oftentimes don't know how to get into it or they get into it and they have to be accredited or they have to go through a lot of regulations. And so providing access to people with, in any given industry, I think is an, ad, an ad, 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 admirable, if I could say the word, um, endeavor. So, well, as, as we kind of now catch up to a bit of your journey and where you're heading a bit in the future, I always have two questions I ask at the end of the podcast. So I'll jump to those now for a bit. The first question I always ask is, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it?
0: Uh, Know who you go into business with. Know your partner. Um, Before Access World Group, there was a predecessor company, which I won't name and I won't name my partner. Mm -hmm. But get to know your partner or you can lose everything quickly. Mm. No, and I
1: think that's, you know... It's an interesting, you know, if you get partner, getting a partner in business is, uh, has a lot of overlaps with dating or otherwise, get, you're marrying someone, but people oftentimes, you don't you don't take it nearly seriously. or think about it in the sense that you date, you, you know, you get to know the person, you have a relationship, you go out a lot and everything else, and yet oftentimes with a partner, you just think, oh, they, they, they compliment this, or they have this money, or they have this access, and good enough, you know, you kind of jump in, but there's a lot that goes into you're going to be with them a lot, you're going to be working long hours, you know, you're both going to be contributing contributing and or hopefully contributing. You're going to have your ups and downs. You'll probably have your fights and whatnot. And so you better make sure as you're doing that, that the partner you get into bed with is going to be one that, uh, that you enjoy. And then one that's going to be a good relationship, a business relationship, because otherwise it can certainly have, you know, uh, negative repercussions for the business.
0: Yeah. I was, um, uh, pretty astute when I figured out what was going on. It was, um, it was like, Six or eight months after we started that I thought this is not working, you know, what did I have access to 27 years of clientele, I had access to money, what did he have access to, well supposedly expertise but he was just more interested in the money that I brought in. So I started over, and here we are.
1: No, definitely makes sense. And uh, a good lesson to learn and one that a lot of entrepreneurs, when you go into into a partnership or into business, you learn one way or the other. So so the second question. question. Yeah, I was going to say, second question I always ask is, if you're talking now to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them?
0: Start earlier. Don't think about it more and more and wonder when you're going to do it. If you have the idea and you have the passion to do it, don't wait. Start today. Start right now. Make that first phone call. Get your business license. Get set up. Name your company. Start moving. Don't waste time because what you'll find is once you get into this, you never have enough time.
1: Mm. No, and I like that because I think that, you know, you always, you can always make excuses as to why now is not the right time and whether it's, hey, I'm just, you know, I haven't, I don't have the right education or I'm, I'm you know, getting, a, starting a family or I'm getting married or I'm, farther in my career, and I don't want to change it, or I don't have the money. There's always reasons why you won't. But every time people get into, I'd say the number one answer we get, you know, with people, as they say, what they would tell entrepreneurs, if they could, is get started early, get started yeah. now, because yeah. you'll always, you'll, you'll very seldom look back and regret getting going now. But oftentimes, you'll wish you had got started earlier. So I love that as, as yes, a takeaway. Absolutely. Well, as we uh, start to wrap up the podcast, if people are wanting to reach out to you, they're wanting to know more, they're wanting to, you know, they want to be or have you invest in them, they want to be a customer, they client, they want to be an employee, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out, find out more?
0: You know, just like you, Devin, I give out my personal number. It's 978-597-8900. And my email, very simple, R-H-T, those are my initials, at acwg.co. Very simple email rht at acwg.co
1: well awesome well i definitely encourage people to reach out and just as a reminder people we are going to talk for just a couple minutes with the bonus question after the normal episode about intellectual property and uh we'll hear you know, your your number one intellectual property question but as we wrap up if you uh, for the normal episode thank you again for coming on it's been a fun it's been a pleasure now for all of you that are listeners if you have your own journey to tell i um, love to have you on the podcast and uh and share your journey just go to inventiveguest.com Apply to be on the show two more things as a listener one is if uh, if you end your podcast player make sure to click subscribe so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out and two, uh make sure to leave us a review so new people can find out about us last but not least if you ever need help with patents trademarks or anything else go to strategymeeting.com sign up and uh and grab some time with us to chat and strategize So now as we wrap up the normal episode, now we get to go on to a bit of the bonus question where we get to flip the tables a bit and you get to ask, you know, you get to ask me questions. I normally during the normal episode, always get asked the questions and you you get to tell me more about your journey. And now we get to flip that a bit. So with that, along, or um, I turn it over to you. What
0: is your number one intellectual property question? You know, I got a patent back in 1997 Mm -hmm. and Shortly thereafter, I think it was maybe four years, it expired. Is that right? Is that how long they last? Uh, not unless you maybe didn't,
1: depending on when you had maintenance fees due as possible. So normally, and I'll give you the normal answer, then you give a couple caveats. Normally when you do a patent application is 20, you get 20 years from the date of filing. So in other words, from the day that you filed your application, you get 20 years before it expires. Now there are a few maintenance fees that you have to pay in, in different increments along the way in order to keep that uh, keep that patent application active and going. So you know you have them at, at every few year increment and they get progressively more expensive. And the way the government basically sets it up is, hey, if this is an important patent to you, you're willing to pay more, you know, fees in order to keep it active for that full twenty years. If at the you know if you get into it and you're saying, hey we no longer using it, no longer valuable, it's no longer worth enforcing, then you can let it go abandoned. So probably where you got into it was after you went through the examination for a period of time, you hit one of those first maintenance fees, period. Uh, you didn't pay the maintenance fee, and therefore it went abandoned.
0: Yeah, and then uh, about a year later, I started getting uh, photographs sent to me from Eastern Europe of my splatterless urinal all over Eastern Europe, and I didn't mm. make a dime on it.
1: Well, that is that is always a trade off. You can get a patent, and if you if you can do it, it it's worthwhile. And yet, there's also that cost and that trade off of how you maintain it, how you keep it active, and what makes sense. So, but back bad. then,
0: back then it was just a whim. I was working full <laughs> time, full bore at uh, at the Wall Street firm. That was my total passion at the time. The mm. the patent was just kind of a whim. And then somebody sent me a picture of my toilet over there, and it's like, wait a second, how did that happen? And that's how it happened.
1: Yeah, I definitely understand. It's one of those that you can look back and, hey, if, if only I kept it active, if I could have been, you know, I could have enforced it or got licensed from it or anything else. And yet, on the other hand, you could, if nobody had ever done it or they hadn't knocked it off, you're saying, hey, I paid all these fees. I never did anything with it. And it doesn't make sense either. So, yeah, always, always well, a crystal ball. And you have to decide where what uh, which path you want to take.
0: Well, that that totally makes sense now the way the government does it ratcheting up the fees so that you have to decide whether you think it's important or not.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Anyway, it's in the public domain.
1: All right. Well, that was a great question. It was fun to chat a little bit about intellectual property. Appreciate you again coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. And uh, if you or anybody of the listeners ever have any other questions about intellectual property, feel free to go to strategymeeting.com. And otherwise, I wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last.
0: Hey thanks very much. I know I know where I'm going to go for my IP law Devin. Sounds
1: thanks a lot. I'm right. sure they